0: Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Goudreau, the president of City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world we'll discuss the practical application of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, and social and economic disparities of all kinds. It is that time again. Since 1978, City College has celebrated the work of the Poet Laureate of Harlem, James Mercer Langston Hughes, with a festival. Now, most Harlemites know of the literary contributions of Hughes, but if you're listening from another state or country, let me just give you a brief history of his life and work. You can't talk really, about Harlem Renaissance without including the work of Langston Hughes. He was born in 1902 and passed away in 1967. In 1926, his first volume of poetry, The Weary Blues, inaugurated a style of poetry that was imbued with the rhythms of jazz and blues. He lived in and traveled to many places, including Africa, Mexico, France, and Asia. He wrote plays, one novel, two autobiographies, and a newspaper column that was dedicated to the depiction of urban African-American life. This year's 42nd annual Langston Hughes Festival will soon be on Zoom. In fact, it'll be on tomorrow. It'll include a symposium from 12.30 p.m. to 2.30 p.m. and an evening ceremony from 6.00 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. The festival is produced by CCNY's Black Studies Programme, And I should say that over my 30 years at City College, I have watched the literary greats of African and African-American literature come through this program and talk about their work. It is one of the premier cultural events that we do at City College every year, and I hope you all find an opportunity to 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 listen in. So the first half of today's show has our guest, director of our Black Studies program, no stranger to our show, Professor Vanessa K. Valdez. And on the second half of the show, we are honored to have this year's recipient of the Langston Hughes Medal, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, join us. Now, let me tell you a little bit about our first guest, Professor Valdez. She's a graduate of Yale and Vanderbilt Universities and is a professor of Spanish and Portuguese language. Her research interests focus on the cultural production of peoples of African descent throughout the Americas, in the United States and in Latin America, including the Caribbean and Brazil. She's the author of Ocean's Daughters. The Search for Womanhood in the Americas, that came out in 2014, and Diasporic Blackness, The Life and Times of Arturo Alfonso Schomburg, which is, uh, came out in 2017. She has an edited book that we are all waiting to come out, should be out this year, called Radicalized Visions, Haiti and the Hispanic Caribbean. And that recenters Haiti, the first black republic in the hemisphere, in the context of Latin American studies. Professor Valdez, welcome back to From City to the World.
1: Thank you, President Boudreaux, for this invitation.
0: You're quite welcome. We're always glad to have you here. I want to talk just to start about the Langston Hughes Festival. Like uh, all events in the age of COVID-19, it's being recorded and produced on Zoom. But I wonder if you could start off by telling our listeners where they might be able to access this.
1: In the future, we'll be on our Langston Hughes Festival YouTube page, as well as on our CCNY Langston Hughes Festival page.
0: So, Vanessa, could you just talk a little bit about um, the Langston Hughes Festival, the legacy of it? What did we establish it to accomplish? And looking at back over the years, um, just talk a little bit about who's come across our stage and what they've brought to the conversation.
1: So Ray Patterson was a professor here at City College. who's a professor of English. Uh, he was a graduate of Lincoln University, which is ultimately where Langston Hughes received his degree um, after studying uh, here in New York City at Columbia. And so Ray Patterson was a writer and a poet, and he established this back in 1978. And so this is our 42nd um, convening of this festival, and it is to honor writers, um, intellectuals of the African diaspora. And so our, you know, our first recipient was James Baldwin. And so over the years, you know, everyone from Toni Morrison and Toni K. Bambara and Alice Walker, Maya Angelou, um, Chinue Achebe, Nikki Giovanni. I mean, these are some of the giants, you know, Lucille Clifton that we've honored. And in most recent years, I'm so very grateful for my predecessor, Rita Powers, who as director, um, she honored Ntozaki Shange. Before she passed away, you know, we've honored Zadie Smith, um, Hilton Alves. Last year, Rita Delve came, of course, on campus because we were on campus. And so, you know, it is our very, very great honor to this year be, be celebrating the life and work of Michael Eric Dyson.
0: So the event takes place in two chunks, right? There's a 1230 symposium and then an evening award ceremony. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about about. You know what those two events look like.
1: So the afternoon symposium is really an opportunity for um, other writers or intellectuals to really present their takes on the honorees' work. And so this year, um, most of our panels have actually our panelists have been either mentored directly or indirectly by Dr. Dyson, um, and so we have, you know, names that I think many of our audience are familiar with on MSNBC or on CNN. So we have, you know, Brittany Cooper, who is a professor at Rutgers, Mark Lamont Hill is a professor at Temple, um, Mark Anthony Neal is a professor at Duke University, Tracy Sharpley Whiting is tremendous, she's at Vanderbilt University, um, and Joan Morgan is down at NYU, and these are folks who have been in, certainly within African American letters, I mean, they are giants in their own right, each and every single one of them. Um, and so we'll get a chance to hear them speak, um, and our honoree respond. Um, and then our evening festival is really where we really lavish, um, our honoree in terms of an attention. So I this year will be, uh, conversing with our honoree. Um, but there's also, you know, there's a, mu- normally a musical performance this year. It'll be a spoken word performance. And we we have a reading, um, and then there's a response to whatever our honoree wants to talk about <laughs> at the end of our conversation. Um, and so, you know, we're just we're just really excited to 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 have these two bookends um, and have as much time as we do with Dr. Dyson.
0: So this is a little delicate question because uh, our honoree is on the line and listening, but I wonder if you could. Uh, say a little bit of something about, about the selection of uh, Dr. Dyson this year? I mean, in some ways, he's a non-traditional honoree. He's less a poet or novelist, although absolutely somebody who writes about culture and music and, and literature, and also a sociologist. So could you say a little bit about what guided uh, your thinking and the thinking of the selection committee this year?
1: Well, I think that, you know, our festival, um, when you look on the Eventbrite, you'll see that it says that we award this medal to distinguished writers and writers who are, yes, in poetry and fiction, drama, but also critical essays. And from his very first book, Dr. Dyson, who has gotten degrees, not I mean, he's gotten a variety of degrees, actually. Um, he is someone who has been intimately, not only affected by the arts, but has written about the arts, lives in the arts. And when I say arts, I think particularly music, but even in his commentary about, um, about television, about film, about he is in this. And so I think, you know, in the first thought, quite frankly, my first thought um, in this, you know, we began planning this, this incarnation of our festival prior to COVID and, you know, when COVID hit and when the city shut down, my first thought was, you know what, maybe we'll do some, you know, we'll we'll put a pause on the festival. We'll do some virtual event that honors our past honorees. You know, we have other, um, other decisions to be made, other options. And then, you know, George Floyd was murdered. Ahmaud Arbery was murdered prior to that. And then George Floyd was murdered as we were all, Um, really, truly grappling with this moment, right? And celebrating Juneteenth across the country, right? You know, I think it really calls for, you know, us as an institution. And quite frankly, you know, I was following your, um, from the presidential perch, what you have said about our mission right at city college as being a school that is anti-racist and that you know that as being inherent in our mission and so i wanted to find someone that spoke to this moment and quite frankly a community member emailed and said you know and i we were grappling with this and the community member said what about michael eric dyson and that was it there was no other choice after that
0: terrific it's a great choice um, yeah, you know, when we talk about the college's uh, mission, a big part of it is it's public mission. It's public mission nationally, but certainly to our Harlem community. So I want to say again, we want uh, our neighbors and our friends to be a part of this celebration of African-American culture. And now we are honored to have our conversation joined by this year's recipient of the Langston Hughes Medal, Professor Michael Eric Dyson. Dr. Dyson, Michael, welcome to From City to the World. Mr. President,
2: Professor Valdez, thank you so much for this uh, wonderful opportunity.
0: Let me uh, tell our listeners a little bit uh, about you. Dr. Dyson is the newly named Centennial Chair and University Distinguished Professor of African American and Diaspora Studies in the College of Arts and Sciences. He is also a University Distinguished Professor of Ethics and Society and in the Divinity School of Vanderbilt University. He's a New York Times contributing opinion writer and a contributing editor of The New Republic and of ESPN's The Undefeated website. He's the author of 23 books. His new book, Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America will be available on December 1st. He's a prominent leader and his thoughtful commentaries often propel him to the national stage. He's taught at Brown University, University of North Carolina and Chapel Hill, Columbia University, University of Pennsylvania, and Georgetown University. He's won many prestigious honors, including the American Book Award and two NAACP Image Awards. Ebony Magazine cited him as one of the 100 most influential African Americans today, and as one of the 150 most powerful blacks in the nation. Again, thank you for, for spending time with us. We're really glad to have you here. You write a great deal about the voices of African-American artists, both contemporary and in the past, and their role in shaping our ideas about race. And and you've surely looked at the list of past Langston Hughes Festival honorees. So what does it mean to be counted among them? And and, and how do you think about your writing in relationship to the James Baldwin and the Maya Angelou's and and the others that have been honored at this festival?
2: Well, first of all, it's an extraordinary honor. I can't thank uh, Professor Valdez enough for her um, generosity of spirit and for her committee's you know, uh, selection of me as this year's recipient. It is enormously humbling and uh, deeply and profoundly moving to me because James Baldwin, your first recipient, like so many millions of others, was such an early influence of mine. Reading his books, Go Tell It on the Mountain, uh, was a pivotal and, uh, signal book for me. And then of course, reading The Fire Next Time, uh, was, was earth moving, uh, shattering, but moving in a, in a profound sense. And so, but so many of the other recipients, uh, that I, that I knew from Maya Angelou that I know to read a dove, uh, it is, it is just mind blowing. And I'm deeply, deeply grateful and appreciative that my name can be mentioned in any light um, near them, seen in any light near them or mentioned in any breath uh, close to their, uh, you know, literary immortality. So it's uh, it's an incredible honor.
0: You've often responded to people who've asked about uh, where your activism resides by saying that, that you're primarily a writer and that you've set for your task the, the, the job of positioning the movement for justice publicly. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the major themes of, of that positioning and, and, and where that work has been um, you know, most necessary and, and maybe most difficult.
2: Right. Well, yes, I do uh, offer that defense, if you will, Mm -hmm. of writing, of thinking, of being a professor, of being a person who picks up a stylus or a pen or a keyboard, uh, as if, what are you doing besides writing? Dude, do you realize what writing is? Do you realize how tough it is? Do you realize how it can move the world? The Bible is a book of writing. I don't compare myself in any way, but I'm talking about writing, the, the word, nomos, logos. Uh, has been central, both from the Greek and the African traditions, has been central to my self-definition and as a preacher of the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. That has been a central imperative and a motivating logic of my own preoccupations from the very beginning. And so I take slight offense, maybe even greater offense, to folk who, who act as if someone who's just writing about the world, isn't, quote, active in it. The, the late rapper Tupac said, I may not change the world, but I can guarantee you I'll spark the brain that will. And so sparking the brain that will is its own especially felicitous vocation. It's a powerful um, thing to do. And I'm honored that some people have found my words motivating, moving, insightful, agitating, disruptive, consternating. Uh, So, you know, my particular position has been to use the word uh, to illumine and enlighten the world as a public intellectual to engage in public conversation about big issues in ways that people can understand what the stakes are. And Mm -hmm. so that has brought me a fair bit of acclaim and a great deal of resistance Death threats, anger, hostility, as well as celebration and love. So you know, I, I do what I do because I feel quote called to do it, driven to do it. as a vocational matter. It's not a profession. It's something that you know I find as necessary as breathing. And you know, it is a vocational uh, response, a vocational calling that uh, I can't help but respond to. But the difficulties, of course, are you got to. Keep writing, keep thinking, don't rest on your laurels. You know, mm-hmm. even now I've got two books in the pipeline. You got to keep pushing, got to keep moving forward, uh, yeah. got to keep thinking and looking at the vast terrain of literacy and to stake your claim
0: as best and as insightfully as you can. You know, my, uh, my father was an English professor. He was my freshman writing professor when I went to school, and he mm-hmm. began his class. He began every semester, he taught freshman writing, with that line from the Bible that, that, that you started with, in the beginning was the word, and he asked his students to really think about that and think about their words. So he would be um, deeply pleased to hear you start in the same place, I know. Mm, um, awesome. In your writing, one of the things that's really so striking is your, your focus and your ability to discuss and your insistence on conveying the experience of, of pain as opposed mm-hmm. to anger, as opposed to rage, as, mm-hmm. as, as, as part of the burden that divides our society. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking even of the, the, Dave Chappelle's extraordinary monologue, I thought, on um, this Saturday night where he, where he really focused on this question of, of pain. And mm-hmm. I wonder how How difficult you found it to get our broader society, of course, I, I, you know, I mostly mean, well, you know, white people who are listening to Mm -hmm. this, to think about the politics of racial injustice as defined by pain instead of anger or resentment or any of the other things that seem to come so easily to hand when, when some people talk about race and politics in America.
2: Right. Well, those are different moments, different gestures some could say a triple-headed hydra, a hydra-headed, you know, uh, expression of anger, of hostility, resentment. Those are all understandable, to be certain, and have their place. You know, it was James Baldwin who said that to be a Negro, in American, to be relatively conscious, is to be constantly enraged. So we know that even the most eloquent spokespeople for the race— have tried to channel the legitimacy of rage. Rage is often love turned inside out. It is, you know, an especially acute sensibility that is felt when what is expected uh, is not delivered. But pain, Mm -hmm. I think, is a kind of vulnerable rage, isn't it? It's a kind of empathy with the other that I'm not trying to harangue you or hurl epithets at you. I'm trying to get you to understand the suffering that we as human beings endure, that if you look honestly and openly in your own heart and soul and spirit, you'll discover you have pain too. And what's Mm -hmm. interesting, of course, is that the pain of the other is often asked of black and Latinx people to understand. Think about it. Mm -hmm. In the 2016 election, Think about the white people and the white working class. And this, mm-hmm. this, this election was a referendum on the elites who failed to listen to them, hear their pain and their anger. I mean, is that how we do it? Right? We, we ask, and we should, by the way. I don't disagree with that at all, except sometimes the pain of white people has been at the expense of black people. Mm-hmm. Right? So part of the pain Right. So it's part of the anger and hostility of working class white Americans or rich white Americans has been to impose limits on black and brown peoples, on indigenous people. It, again, it was Baldwin that said, you know, we can all get along and we can talk and we can try to talk about transformation, but that ends the moment your self expression rests upon killing me, denying me my personhood, my identity. And so much of the hostility of whiteness, think about it, is expressed that way. White people get mad during pandemic, take guns, head to state capitals, and threateningly and dangerously put at risk the lives of others, both by not wearing masks and by wielding weapons that can potentially be turned against governors of Michigan. Oh, was it just merely symbolic? then why is it that the FBI arrested a phalanx of people, a gaggle of goons who were intending to kidnap the governor, Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, to put her on trial and then execute her? Mm -hmm. So that's white anger, white hostility, but it is often directed against the very people that it continues to impose pain on and hurt and hostility on. Whereas for the most part, black and Latinx people and other Minoritized populations are saying, look, our pain comes from you refusing to treat us fairly and justly or to do for us what you would do for yourselves, is to presume your humanity. When we talk to white people, we see, you know, them uh, in aggregate, in toto, wielding machetes where police people run from them. Whereas an unarmed black person, an unarmed Latinx person, is mowed down and shot without moral compunction or often legal redress. And so pain is the suffering of humanity seeking empathy as a bridge to communicate to white brothers and sisters that this stuff hurts. And maybe that's why the George Floyd incident finally touched white people in a way that they hadn't been touched before because they could see this. What is this guy doing? He's not doing anything. He's Mm -hmm. begging to breathe. What's his sin? What's his fault? What's his flaw? What's his offense? A $20 bill? And the owner of the store Cup Foods in Minneapolis on that May 25th fateful date said, most people don't even know they're passing counterfeit money. The guy probably didn't even realize he's passing counterfeit money a pack of cigarettes. Is his life worth that? Look at the pain. Many white people say, wait a minute, now there's no escape here, no hiding place down here. We can't say he was being belligerent, nasty, hostile. What happened before? The only resistance he offered was because he was six foot six. We couldn't take a true measure of his impressive physical stature because he was laid out prostrate on the ground. But the thing is, they saw he's begging to breathe. He's calling his mama He's asking, he's being even nice, Mr. Officer, he's saying. And yet Derek Chobin's knee rests faithfully on his neck, pouring into it, boring into it with a lethal intensity to Mr. Floyd's severely depressed column. And so many white people saw this for the first time and felt the pain that black people have been trying to express. So pain is critical as an expression of empathetic identification
0: with the other. Michael, I want to stay with this just for a second, this, this, this question of, of pain and the communication of pain. I want to ask, not quite sure how to ask this question. So, mm-hmm. so let, let me give it a shot and, and, and you can tell me where I've got it wrong. But, but I, I want to ask you a little bit about audience and i'm sympathetic to the position of somebody who might say like why is it my burden to communicate to white people you know why they should be empathetic i mean we should be able to live our lives and speak our truth without making you know dominant white culture the 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 target of our of our argument and then there's political considerations where you you've got to take advantage of an opportunity to broaden a coalition. And, and so, uh, again, I'm asking this in a kind of awkward way, but I want, I wonder how you think about audience and whether, you know, whether you take advantage of the opportunity to communicate to everybody who wants to, um, have a decent conversation about race in the United States or, or is it, is it a burden to have to be thinking about what you know, what white America, how white America is going to react to the kind of writing and stories and heart conversations that you're asking us to have?
2: Yeah, that's a a very powerful and relevant question. You know, and there are multiple ways of coming at it, different angles. The elephant is big, the approach is vast. Mm -hmm. But when you think about it, uh, there are a lot of exhausted black people, and they have a right to be exhausted. I was kidding. Mm -hmm. Some of my students, you know, who claim in in recent years, we didn't come here to teach white people what to do and how to think about race. We're students, too. We're trying to get an education. And guess what? They'll keep asking us in class, you know, what it feels like to be black or can we answer the question? And then if we fall behind, we're faulted for being stupid when what we've been doing is addressing the racial ignorance of our peers. So... You can see the, the trick bag, as they used to say in the sixties, into which black people, Latinx people, minoritized people are thrust. Because taking the time to do it could be a full-time job. Because there there appear to be vast reaches of ignorance among white brothers and sisters. Is it deliberate ignorance? Is it willful ignorance? You know, I teach at a Catholic university right now before I head to to Vanderbilt. And the Catholics have a notion of culpable ignorance, you know. So the mm-hmm. cop stops you on the street and you're going 30 in a 25 mile hour zone. Say, well, I didn't I didn't see a particular sign, but yeah, but this sign suggests it. And if you had studied your book before you took your license test, your test to get a license, you would have known that. So you're responsible for knowing that. That's culpable ignorance. You're responsible for the ignorance you had. You should have known it. You had the opportunity to know it, right? We Mm -hmm. could say that to white brothers and sisters. You're going, teachers, but gum, Du Bois is written. James Baldwin is written. Toni Morrison is written. Rita Dove is written. Hilton Owls is written. Langston Hughes is written. And on and on and on and on and on. Just the roll call of the esteemed figures who have received this medal, myself accepted, uh, have provided enough grist for the mill. So it must be you don't really want to know, because if you really wanted to know, the resources are there. On the other hand, I think about the young white woman in Boston hearing Malcolm X speak, being moved by his rhetoric, and then tracking him down from Boston to New York and finally approaching him. Minister Malcolm, I was so moved by what you said. I'm a young white girl tell me what I can do. And I think anybody who's seen the film or read the autobiography knows what he said. She said, when, 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 when he answered her, when she said, what can I do? He said nothing. And then walked rather cold heartedly. Some would say away. Now he apologized for that later. He, he felt regretful about that later. And I'm a teacher. I respect black people who feel that they're exhausted. You know, being woke is a big, big job, Right. Some black people yeah. have been asleep since 1619 collectively, <laughs> right? So, so they're, they, they've got racial insomnia. They just can't go to sleep because they're afraid to sleep because if they sleep stuff will change, people will move, the situation will become even more dangerous, and our lives are at risk and at stake. On the other hand, I was joking with my students in class when they said, yeah, I didn't come here to teach, you know, white people anything, and I joined it, and I said, yeah, I know what you're saying. I didn't come here to teach white people. I said, oh, wait a minute. I'm the professor. I guess I did. And they (laughs) would chuckle a bit, and the white people are relieved. (laughs) And I say, look, I understand that, but that's my job. It could be part of my calling. I was uh, being interviewed by Michael Denzel Smith, a wonderful young writer, and he said, I was disappointed, Doc, in your book, Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America. You're talking directly to white people. You know, you have presumed in so much of your literature, you know, you you talk to black people. I said, I'm still talking to black people, except this time I'm talking for them. I said, I can't Mm -hmm. tell you how many black people came up to me and said, thank you for addressing these issues to white people. And I said, I teach white people, too. I teach Latinx people. I teach Asian brothers and sisters. I teach indigenous people. I teach everybody. I think everybody should know about our culture and we should know about theirs. So Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, it's important for me to speak to white people in power who have the ability to change things. And I I feel a moral responsibility. Everybody ain't got to do that. I understand that everybody doesn't have that obligation, that ethical imperative to speak in a particular way to a dominant white audience. But I have that position. I have that perspective. I have that inclination. And if you will, I have that ministry. I'm a minister of the gospel. And so I believe in redemption. This is why I've written powerfully, hopefully, but at least directly against cancel culture, as I do in my latest book mm-hmm. coming out December 1st. I believe sincerely in holding people to account, but I don't think that negotiating and adjudicating our disputes on the internet, on social media, where it already lacks nuance and complication and color and depth and dimension, that we can relegate it to, you know, cancel culture. And so I'm, a, uh, you know, I oppose that. I think cancel culture ought to be canceled. I get it. In some instances, it has certainly turned out right uh, and fair. But in many instances, it hasn't. And then the cancelees are the cancelers. And then this day, you're not black enough. You're not Latinx enough. You're not true to Puerto Rico, the big island. You're not a true enough barista. Uh, You're not authentic. Uh, And and now we want to cancel Lin-Manuel Miranda. And I get it. You can be critical of Lin-Manuel in regard to whether or not he paid strict attention to the dealings with slavery of Alexander Hamilton. But let's not neglect the fact that he saw in Alexander Hamilton a man coming from the Caribbean with nothing in his hand, coming to America, forging his way. Yes, he was involved in slavery, not himself. He didn't own uh, enslaved human beings, but his father-in-law did, and he had other dealings. So we can acknowledge that, but are we gonna knock down the genius of Lin-Manuel Miranda? What he did in Hamilton, where he used the rhetoric of hip hop, which is the rhetoric of people who are the offsprings directly of those who were enslaved using their vernacular uh, along with Latinx people to tell the truth about America, that's powerful. So let's not cancel people with whom we disagree or who may have flaws. White brothers and sisters, I think, have to be spoken to, have to be engaged. That's why I wrote my book, Tears We Cannot Stop. And in this book, despite the fact that I'm writing letters to the martyrs, like, you know, Breonna Taylor or Eric Garner or Emmett Till or Sandra Bland or Hadia Pendleton or Clemente Pinckney and Elijah McClain, I also address white brothers and sisters. I think it's necessary. For those of us who have the interest, the impetus, and the inclination, we have to take that seriously and to engage white brothers and sisters.
0: So, I mean, this is, a, this is a good moment to ask you about, you know, we're only three days past the election being called by CNN for Joe Biden. And it's absolutely a moment for a lot of people to celebrate. But we also know that 70 million people voted for the current president, and, and maybe not because he has been, um, shall we say, accommodating to white supremacist uh, positions, but at least they voted for him in the knowledge that he has been. And I wanted to ask, you know, is this in any way a kind of of a revelation about where we stand as a, as a society? Is it something that, that you've kind of known all along? And, and with that as backdrop, what do you think the way forward is for?
2: Yeah, it's uh, not surprising, but still disappointing, still astonishing that more people voted for Trump after knowing four years of what he has given us than before when they could claim a kind of ignorance. Right. Uh, we didn't know. Uh, you said he was going to do that, but we didn't believe it. So, you know, we, we, we put him in office and now we saw what he is. Well, let's be honest. You know, the the big argument was, well, if you vote for Trump, you're not an automatic racist. Okay, But my God, you're voting for a guy who is. And you're saying, look, I can put his racism aside because it might help my checkbook, might help my pocketbook. Or, to be more honest, it it helps my standing as a poor white person or a working class white person or a rich white person in this culture. The rich white people, he's going to save my pocketbook and my taxes. The working class white people. Uh, He's extending a healthy economy that was given to him by by uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden. And for working class white people, he ain't really much interested in representing your 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 particular ideas and interests, because the people he put into office um, were mostly billion millionaires and some of them, you know, extremely most of them very rich people want to say to white brothers and sisters. Like Malcolm said, have you been hoodwinked? Have you been bamboozled here? And if not, then own up to the fact that Donald Trump, he's the avatar and symbol of white supremacy. He ain't started it. And he is produced out of a womb of intolerance and extraordinary bigotry and hostility and anti-blackness. He announces his presidency, that is his run for the presidency, by descending the escalator in Trump Tower, and proceeds to beat up on Mexicans as rapists. From the very first note, it was a note of anti-humanitarianism. It was xenophobic. It was racist. And since then, we've seen the investment in lies and untruth and anti-science. And it is astonishing. It is breathtakingly. Problematic and pathological and malignant. The mendacity that flows unchecked by people who are complicit. Um, Mitch McConnell, as the head of the, the leader of the Senate and the majority party, um, or Lindsey Graham, and the, the patent hypocrisy of these men who, when Barack Obama, with 10 months left, wanted to put Merrick Garland forward as the nominee for the Supreme Court, wouldn't even hear it, wouldn't even take it into consideration. And a few days before the election, uh, Amy Coney uh, Barrett is confirmed as a justice for the Supreme Court. I mean, time after time. So enough of the talk of we didn't know. Enough of the talk of well, but. Enough of the talk that it's an asterisk there because, yes, he says things sharply but his policies are great. He doesn't say things merely sharply. He attacks women. He attacks black women. He attacks women of color. Uh, he is viciously misogynistic. He is pathologically mendacious. And all of this means that 70 million people saw that it was still a viable prospect to embrace this man and to send him back To the white house that is astonishing not surprising but astonishing and that means we got a lot of work to do to address the history of white supremacy and white nationalism in this country and its present manifestation this ain't just a history lesson i mean um, you know faulkner is right the past you know it's not that we can ever get over the past the past ain't even past; it's still here and so this renewal of the confederacy this fighting over flags that are flying to celebrate a dominion of deceit and dishonesty and dishonoring of the American compact. The irony is black and Latinx and other poor peoples and peoples of color whose backs are against the wall are more faithful to the ideals of this nation and therefore arguably more patriotic than the very people who claim it, but who are willing to look the other way. When a man in the White House who is the president of the United States of America chooses the word of an ostensible enemy of the state who has interfered with our elections to the benefit of Mr. Trump named Vladimir Putin and who embraces this figure while spurning his own intelligence community is beyond belief. Had Barack Obama even had a white Russian drink in the Oval <laughs> Office, they may have put him out of town, and this guy embraces a white Russian drinking in the White House. It's rather disheartening. We've got to have an honest conversation. Let me end by saying this. Look at all the conversations, speaking about an earlier point, you made, look at all the conversations, John Kasich and some reasonable Republicans, that's almost an oxymoronic statement these days, but... You know, oh, well, you got to reach out to the other side. Rick Santorum, who's not a reasonable Republican. You got to reach out to the other side. We haven't even gotten into office, the the Democrats, the progressives, the liberals, that coalition. They haven't even gotten into office, and you're encouraging them to think about the other side and the hurt and pain of those 70 million. But I didn't hear them four years ago when Trump got in, you know, be very Mm -hmm. careful about the lives of black people who feel vulnerable as a result of the election of this man. And he did nothing but reinforce that fear over the next four years and not a peep, not a word from the same people to be concerned with Latinx people, black and brown and red and yellow people in this country. It's revealing and indicative of the fact it's not just Trump, it's a bunch of people, millions of people who either endorse his viewpoints are permitting them to persist regardless of whatever problem they may have and find him a reasonable articulation of their view of America. That's, that's painful. That's astonishing and dangerous and quite troubling.
0: When you wrote about Hurricane Katrina, you talk about the neglect of, of black people and and, as if it, you know, as if it's almost a more um, dangerous act of violence than, than, than the focused violence that's visited on black people by police brutality. And there's a casual turning away from black people in need that defined what happened in New Orleans and other places after that. And I'm, I'm thinking about that a lot in the wake of this election because one of the, you know, obviously one of the complaints and, but observations of, of political scientists who think about race and electoral politics is every four years we talk about how uh, people are elected on the backs and uh, behind the effort of black voters black women um and then there is this disappointing aftermath where the policy door is closed and and sort of exposed needs of the black community and and community of people in in need are not responded to And, and and so i wonder you know, is there any reason to believe African-American Indian woman as vice president, Georgia coming over to the Democratic side, without doubt, behind the effort of, of Stacey Abrams? Is, is, is there any reason to believe that the policy aftermath of this election is going to be less neglectful than it has been in the past? Yeah, that's...
2: Uh... You know, it's an important and, uh, great question. And yeah, it, it, despite the enormous celebration of the historic event of my friend, Senator Kamala Harris, now Vice President elect Kamala Harris, the first black, the first black female, the first female, the first black female, the first Asian female, Southeast Asian female, the first woman to occupy that office. We saw the birtherism that was unleashed against Barack Obama 12 years ago with Donald Trump. We saw it repeated throughout his presidency, and there's little doubt that that Vice President Harris will be subject to the same acrimony, but it's clear she's a very tough woman. She's made for this. She has a tough exterior And a determined spirit to stand up and appeal to, even though it's become cliched, uh, Lincoln's term of the better angels of our nature. There will be the outpouring of hate and disharmony, but there will also be extraordinary love and consideration and appreciation uh, for what she represents. And the hard road of governing, there will be legitimate criticism uh, waged against her uh and you know president biden if they don't due to the to the principles that they express but look at the extraordinary thing that biden did he says directly to black people hey i owe you and i will mm-hmm. take care of you in this administration that is extraordinary has any other president ever really said that to the consternation to the to the neglect to the regret of many, it was um, the failure of even the Obama presidency to be that explicit. Some felt that he couldn't be, some felt that he should have been. uh, But to make such a clear statement and to have a woman like Kamala Harris, who is a graduate of an HBCU, the Obama administration had had some complicated relationships to HBCUs and had put forth some policies that were deleterious to them. Here's a woman who graduates from an HBCU who is part of a sorority. So it's a complicated nuanced perspective we need to adopt. Yes, there will be the resistance to her. And as you said earlier, when I talked about the kind of refusal to acknowledge the humanity of black people in Hurricane Katrina or in my book on Bill Cosby, both of those mm. books show me grappling with poor black people, defending them against an act of nature and an act of a human being who was grossly insensitive to the plight and predicament of the poor black folk that he assailed. And perhaps one of the most bitter ironies of all is that now that he is himself in trouble, he claims the same racial argument that he maligned poor black people for using not 10 years before. When you look at the complicated situation, yes, there will be hurt and pain and agony and drama and anti-blackness and anti-Asian sentiments. And, you know, here's a president who talks about the Chinese flu. So the anti-Asian sentiment in this country is deeply entrenched. And yet those of us who are on the side of what we perceive to be right, of love, of embracing people through justice. And I say often that justice is what love sounds like when it speaks in public. We have to adhere to and maintain our fidelity Uh, to those very principles that motivate us, that got those people, I think, in office, and that will continue to hold them accountable, as well as make us even more sensitive to the plight and predicament of poor black people, poor brown people, poor white people, for that matter, and
0: people whose backs are against the wall. So we have time, I think, for one more question. And I wanted to close by talking about your work in the area of prison reform, your advocacy around prison reform. And I think you've spoken publicly about your brother, Everett. He was in prison for 29 years, recently passed away in prison. And during all that time, you consistently and energetically advocated for his release, maintained his innocence, never stopped asserting that, and and still do. I wonder if you can talk about the relationship between what you saw and lived in relationship to your brother and what happened to him and your thoughts about what needs to change in the American justice system.
2: My brother Everett, you know, 30 years in uh, in prison for something he claimed he didn't do, a murder he didn't mm-hmm. commit. Um, he was a drug dealer. I wasn't inclined to just believe him automatically because he's my brother. After okay. all, if you're in that kind of dangerous business, that kind of stuff can happen. At that point, I'm from Missouri. Show me, prove it to me that you didn't do it. And then when the trial came about and there was really no physical evidence and there was only the dying declaration of the man who said he heard, he said somebody's name sounding like my brother's, not even my brother's. It was enough for an all-black jury to convict him. So I I lived with that for 30 years. The economic drain on his family, uh, the emotional drain him being cooped up, caged up for a crime he didn't commit, as he contended. Uh, We were featured on CNN's first Black in America with Soledad O'Brien at the helm. A lot of people were deeply intrigued and understanding of the complicated situation. One brother at Penn at University of Pennsylvania, then teaching another brother in the Penn um, in Michigan and and throughout its uh, different uh, counties, And it was tough. You know, I I certainly was impacted by his plight. I certainly believe that there were so many black people who were locked up who weren't even accused of committing a crime like his, nonviolent drug offenses. And yet they were in prison for 20 and 30 years. People just serving life for a nonviolent drug offense. It's extraordinarily painful. And then when we talk about the prison pipeline, the school to prison pipeline, when you got kids being kicked out of school at three and four, well, six and seven and eight years old, and then they're sent to juvenile detention and juvenile detention becomes a feeder to jail. Jail becomes a warehouse for prison. And the way in which there is a line of increasing uh, ensnarement that happens with uh, many black and brown bodies ending up, I think, unfairly, unjustly in prison. And now that we have white brothers and sisters who are victims of opioid addiction, they are being hospitalized and medicalized instead of being criminalized like black and brown people when we were victims of, you know, crack cocaine. So the disparity is glaring, and again, the racial injustice, monumental, And it has to be addressed. It has to constantly be talked about, spoken about. Uh, The disparities in sentencing, when powder cocaine got you a far less harsh sentence than crack cocaine, or it took only $25 of crack cocaine to get you the same thing for abusing $10,000 of powder cocaine. So, And we know powder cocaine was being disproportionately consumed by white brothers and sisters, white people in general, uh, do more drugs by self-reporting than black and brown people, and yet black and brown people are going to jail and prison. So this is an ongoing plague that we have to confront in our own culture, and my brother's case, uh, painful as it is, uh, reminds me of that daily.
0: Well, um, thank you. Um, thank you for listening to From City to the World. I'd like to give a special thanks to our two guests, professor, author, and director of CCNY's Black Studies Program, Dr. Vanessa Valdez, and professor, author, and national commentator, Michael Eric Dyson, who is this year's recipient of the Langston Hughes Medal at City College. The show is produced by Angela Hardy and yours truly, Vince Boudreau. Dr. Dyson, Dr. Valdez, thank you so much. We really appreciate both of you being on the show today. My great honor. Thank you so kindly.
1: Thank you.